Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Welcome to the next COVID update. Today we have Mervyn Singer, who is a prominent ICU consultant at UCLH. We discuss what we've learned during the pandemic and he has some personal opinions on different treatments and what's gone really well and what we might do differently if there was a second wave. We've kind of started all of them in the same way. When was the first time you realised it was going to be like such a problem? And then what did you think about how you'd go about preparing? Oh, you were starting? Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was just talking. OK, hello You're so everyone. casual. Yeah. So casual. Yeah, hello. I just a fireside chat. Welcome back. Thank you very much. And the fire's crackling in the corner of the room. <laughs> yeah, hi. Um, when did I realise it was uh, first going to be a problem? I think when the proverbial hit the fan in Italy. You know, I've got lots of mates who run intensive care units up and down Italy and a lot in the Lombardy region. And they, sort of early March, described what they were going through as like being in a war zone. And I thought this was being a bit melodramatic. And actually, I think they were right. But it, it was just a combination of hearing from them what it was like and the news programmes were coming through, just showing how hospitals were being overwhelmed, critical care units were being overwhelmed, they were running out of ventilators. So that brought it home to me that, hey, if this does come to the UK, we're going to be in trouble. And my worry was that, you know, we hadn't really prepared as a country as well as we could have done. And to be fair, I was of a similar view until early March, thinking, oh, well, this will be a bit like a, just a bad flu season. But then come early March, you know, when the Italians were really going through it, I thought, mm, this could be much more serious. So the UK started scaling up in March. We, I think partly because I, I've got lots of mates in China and Italy and I was hearing a, a very similar story from them that they were being overrun by lots of very sick patients and they ran out of intensive care beds and ventilators. So they had to move to non-invasive supports like CPAP, high-flow nasal oxygen, which were frowned upon because there was this, again, this paranoia that it would aerosolise the virus, yeah. weaponise it and increase the risk of healthcare worker infections. But I remember um, early March sending out a little questionnaire to my mates in Italy and I got replies from about 10 of them from around the country there and I asked them a few pointed questions you know how many beds have you got in your hospital ICU beds how many are being ventilated how many are on non-invasive ventilation are you having problems with oxygen supply because these devices are more oxygen hungry yeah. um, have you got any of your colleagues doctors nurses who are looking after these patients as intensive care patients themselves in your units and they were all uniform in responding that a large number of people could be kept off ventilators they were managing many of these patients on the ward rather than having to admit them to the ICU they weren't having problems with oxygen supply and they didn't know of any in their hospital or anywhere else where a doctor and nurse looking after these patients became an ICU patient themselves so that gave me, A, the reassurance that it was probably safe, and B, they didn't have the outcome data, but it did seem logical that this was a, a route we should be following to try and look after our resource, because in the UK, compared to the rest of the developed world, we have uh, much fewer intensive care beds per 100,000 population. 
So Italy have approximately twice as many, France have twice as many, Germany have about seven, eight times as many as us. And so if it was going to come here badly, you know, then we would really struggle. So the good news is that my colleagues in intensive care, the docs and nurses, the respiratory uh, physicians, the hospital administration all bought into the concept that, yep, even though it wasn't NHS guidance at the time, it would be sensible to try and prepare to manage patients with non-invasive ventilation. And so moves um, started happening to develop the T7 as a CPAP ward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also to train doctors and nurses. You know, there were only, I think at the time, 12 standalone CPAP machines in the whole trust. And so it was a case of, yes, we need more, but we also need the doctors and nurses to be comfortable looking after them. Yeah, how did you go about training people yep. that quickly? To give Ronan Aston his due, he's one of the respiratory physicians and he's the one who's got a particular interest in non-invasive ventilation, you know, for sleep apnea and that sort of type of patient. Um, and so he set up a brilliant training program. They've got respiratory physiologists there who are very familiar with these devices. And obviously there were some nurses as well. And so they asked for people who were interested to work on T7 and they got lots of doctors and nurses volunteering who were interested. And I think, I can't remember the exact number, but they put on a series of tutorials I think they got about 100 people into the education centre. And so they were given talks on theory and practice yeah. and you know, brought up to speed. And did you, as intensive care doctors, did you, how did you support them clinically? Because yeah. it's one thing, I guess, learning everything and being yeah. shown, but then using it in practice under with lots of very unwell patients is, yeah. is hard. Yeah, so <laughs> we had a two-pronged approach. Um, the outreach team were very good. And so John Welch and Titch, yeah, they ca came and supported the um, T7. And in fact, I think we had either one of the PERT team or a critical care nurse, senior nurse, actually stationed on T7 to give active 24-7 support mm -hmm. to uh, these relatively novice doctors and nurses, which I think was great. I remember giving a few tutorials on the Ventura CPAP that we developed and again showing people how to put it together, how to use it, how to troubleshoot, etc. And so, you know, we also had one of the ICU consultants um, we had in a sort of roaming role to support the hospital. Uh, so when I was doing it, uh, I would go to AMU to see patients there or see if the clinicians needed any input from me there and yeah. likewise on T7. So we had a very good interaction, a very good liaison with them. Yeah. What sort of brought about the development of the Ventura CPAP system then? Well, that came about partly, as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, we only had 12 CPAP devices in the trust, so we needed more. And there was a problem trying to source them because there was a national shortage, in fact, a global shortage of machines. Yeah. The other issue was uh, when Boris Johnson launched his ventilator challenge, and this was in the middle of March, this was on a Sunday evening, I remember thinking to myself, what a stupid idea, you know. A, we didn't have the ventilators. B, to actually build a ventilator from scratch and not being rude to Dyson and Airbus and Rolls-Royce. Yeah. They're great companies, but to actually build a medical piece of equipment which has to be safe, reliable, functional, and to be able to cope with a, a COVID patient. And they've got sick lungs, the ones that came to intensive care. And to do all of this in a matter of weeks 
and then you have to go not just make it you have to go through testing regulatory etc i thought oh it'll be months rather yeah. than weeks as i mentioned earlier we not only had relatively few ventilators so in the uk there's about three and a half thousand critical care beds and using anaesthetic machines and borrowing machines from the private sector we just about doubled that capacity mm -hmm. but they were modeling the potential need for up to thirty thousand, and that was assuming everyone would sort of flood into intensive care yet hey we didn't have the beds to put them in and the staff to look after them one of the the big problems and you know you may have heard this from elaine yeah. uh, the other day but you know, we usually operate one nurse to one sick ICU patient, so one trained nurse who can look after ventilators and arterial lines and the like. And that was diluted significantly. Yes. People were going off sick and we had this huge influx of patients anyway. So we went, I think at the worst, we were operating on one nurse to four patients, you know, being filled in by non-ICU trained nurses, but still it's a huge strain to try and manage these sick patients on a one to four ratio and some hospitals around London were operating one to six. Yeah. In haematology we helped as much as we could and myself and Gavin went to help in ITU and the, the ITU nurses were incredible. I've yeah. never seen anything like it being able to not only support you but keep an eye on all these ventilators that we'd not had very much to do with before. I know Gavin has but that's a lot of pressure. But you can't, yeah, you can't overstate how difficult it is to yeah. basically be solely responsible for, yeah. you know, five or six people at once. Yeah, and with all the best will in the world, even with our previous experience, there's only so much you can do. Unless you're doing intensive care every day, yeah. you don't gain those skills. Yeah, 100% agree. And it was obviously stressful in many other ways. PPE was cumbersome, horrible to wear. Yeah. You couldn't hear, couldn't communicate. You can only be in it for a couple of hours. You know, the risk of obviously catching something, mm. you know, becoming ill yourself. So there was all this pressure, this strain, this sort of, you know, it was a new disease and mm. we weren't sure how best to manage it. And a lot of young sick people were getting incredibly ill. Mm. And it was, you know, I think nurses did brilliantly. I think, dare I say it, it was easier for the docs and the nurses because it was the nurses who were there at the bedside. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I take my hat off to them. And, you know, it was a challenge because we, we're normally in our comfort zones. You know, we do what we do day in, day out. We're comfortable. And all of a sudden you're being required to do something that's completely alien to your day-to-day -day work. Oh, you've got to look after four patients today, not one. But what? what? You know, and so you have to adapt. You have to be agile. Yeah. I mean, I guess just to contrast it, what does a bad winter flu season look like for you because I mean obviously with yeah. COVID you doubled or tripled your capacity yeah. and every single patient in there had COVID and was yeah. being treated primarily for yeah. COVID I mean what would it normally look like yeah. for like you know influenza so much 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 less so we have 35 ICU beds and in general it's quite unusual to have more than 15 20 ventilated and a lot of those are in a sort of weaning phase and it's just waiting for them hopefully to get better and come off the vent and so probably at any one time you have you know five to ten sick sick patients and the rest are sick but not sick sick and now you had i think at our peak we had 62 patients spread between the ICU recovery, the operating theatres, and these were all sick patients, you know, and so 
it wasn't just the numbers, it was the severity. Talking about what COVID actually did to the patients and why it was so bad, what can you tell us about what we've learnt? What have we learnt? It behaves differently to anything we've previously experienced. That's number one. Number two, probably the role of thrombosis is much greater than we've seen before because, again, a, a lot of patients were developing or presenting with DVTs, pulmonary emboli, arterial emboli. They could get strokes, heart attacks, but the majority were DVTs and pulmonary emboli. And looking at post-mortems of COVID lung patients, or the lungs in particular, there were lots of not only sometimes big thrombi, but lots of microthrombi. And there's this sort of synergism, this interaction between thrombosis and inflammation. So inflammation can drive thrombosis and vice versa. And uh, I think this was probably much greater than we'd ever experienced with standard ARDS, for example. And so I think we learned to increase the amount of anticoagulation we were giving. So instead of everyone getting low-dose anticoagulation prophylaxis, we went to a sort of middle ground, intermediate dose, and obviously fully anticoagulated the ones who had clinically proven or highly suspected PEs, DVTs, whatever. Mm. So we learned about that. We learned how to ventilate them a bit better, you know, over time, because they were difficult to ventilate. I think, you know, there are lessons to learn about how we did it. Um, again, when you're very busy, you can't give that individualized care that you would when it's sort of one patient to look after yeah. and you know and I think it's fair to say that there was a heavy use of sedation and paralysis just to keep them alive and not fighting the vent pulling out their tubes etc so that you could look after a mass of patients the downside is that you know these patients were quite heavily soaked in sedatives and Again, waking them up, they often went through quite a, a lively uh, sort of, I call it the, the twilight zone, when you're not awake and you're not asleep and you go through this state of agitation, delirium. And it's quite hard to manage these patients through that period and get them through to the other side where they're cooperative. Was there like encephalitis as well? Or was there, do you think it's more like just the nature of the sedation? Yeah, I, I think just, again... There's a lot of, how can I put it? I was going to say rubbish. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> hype and perhaps, you know, not very clear thinking surrounding COVID. And for example, encephalitis has been talked about, but have we seen it? No, this is what you see in any sick patient. You know, when you become septic, you become encephalopathic. You know, so it doesn't mean you're, you have a specific brain issue, but you don't behave normally. You may be agitated, drowsy, comatose. It's the same with any infection. I think COVID's no different. So I don't think there was a lot of virus-affecting brain type of syndrome. There were some specific cases of an encephalitis, but they were actually quite limited. Um, cytokine storm. Again, it, that, this was banded around. It doesn't exist. If you actually look at the data, and now the papers are beginning to come through, actually saying, well, the cytokine levels were generally normal or only a bit elevated. And so in a, a standard septic patient, ARDS patient, the levels of inflammatory cytokines are way, way higher. And so people have gone 
onto these different bandwagons. I suppose it's really difficult, isn't it? Because at the time, you've got mm. all of these people thinking, what can we do yeah. and what can we look at as you're still learning more and more about I the disease? I think that was the danger, personally, and it's something I keep harping on about, that you know, I was getting literally four or five emails a day saying, oh, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Yeah. So, you know, and these uh, every ologist had something they could relate to in their ology that, oh, we could try this, we could try that. And I was getting lots of weird and wacky things from outside. I was getting, you know, engineers emailing me really? and um, homeopaths and, you know, oh, have you thought of doing this? Have you thought of doing that? And, Was you know, water? Pump? <laughs> water. Water, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, to be fair, who knows, they may have worked, but because there were some features that everyologists could relate to, therefore it had to be related to the disease they were interested in. And therefore, how about trying this treatment? Yeah. And the danger with that is trying this treatment if you don't do it in a controlled manner you don't know if it's going to work or not hmm. you know people say oh we should use compassionate use drugs just give it to them and i would think well no because if everyone's going to die then you can make an argument but we know about half of the patients coming to intensive care died it got better over time but initially there were about half who were ventilated and that means half will live so how do you know your drug is working if the patient lives? Would they've got better anyway? And if they died, was it the disease or could it be a contributory factor from the drug? I know we've read in the press recently about the use of low-dose dexamethasone, for example. Yeah. I, I'm a steroid fan, so uh, I should um, paraphrase my following comments with the fact that I actually like steroids. However, the treatment effect is way, way, way beyond anything that you would have predicted. And so the question is why and how? And if you looked at the, there's a preprint of the paper out now, and again, when you read it, it's, the trouble is it was done in such a way that, you know, not a huge amount of data were collected. And there are a number of oddities in the paper, which don't make sense. You know, so about 15% of the people enrolled uh, weren't on oxygen. Now, hang on a minute, you're coming with a predominantly respiratory disease, you would have thought most of them would be on oxygen. And the mortality in this group was actually significantly worse. Well, not significant, well, it was trending to harm. It wasn't quite statistically significant, but there was a 20% increase in mortality in that group, whereas there was a 30% benefit in the group who were ventilated. So hang on a minute, why is it causing a signal to harm in one group and a benefit in another? We don't know, we don't understand. You know, and the dose of steroid was relatively low. So what's the rationale? It could be, there wasn't, again, the way the, the trial was conducted, it was what's called a platform trial. And so it wasn't standardized. It wasn't a randomized double blind trial where it was all started at the same time. You could start at any time in the patient's illness. Um, you knew what you were giving. If the clinician didn't have equipoise, they could say, well, no, I don't want them to have steroids. You know, so there were lots of get out clauses. So. It'll be interesting to see. There are other dexamethasone trials going on around the world. And 
including actually the UK, another one in the UK. And it'll be interesting to see when they report, do they get equivalent results? So I think, again, going back to my earlier vote for steroids, I think steroids are useful to that degree. But we're just not sure why yet. No. Or, or you know, the treatment effect is just huge, 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 huge. You know, is it true? I don't know. I think I, I'm happy to use steroids. We were using them anyway in people who are really, really inflamed on intensive care, mm. you know, and which is our standard practice anyway. Would I have predicted a 30% outcome improvement benefit? Probably not. No, certainly not. <laughs> the first time that I'd heard about someone being proned mm -hmm. in, t in terms of ventilating them better, can you explain why that works? Mm. Again, going into the complexities, there's lots of theories. When we were apes, uh, you know, we uh, walked on all fours. And so a more natural position, position for us from an evolutionary point of view is to be on all fours because that's where we started from. And there's something about the matching of ventilation and perfusion into your lungs that actually helps when you're on your tummy rather than on your back or standing up. So that's the logic that you get this shifting in flow. And also, again, when there's very inflamed lungs, you get sort of gravitational movement of fluid because you often get edema and fluid leaking out into the bases of the lung. And so that fluid can then put pressure on the alveoli, collapsing them down. So when you roll the patient over, you've got less collapsed alveoli that can be recruited and ventilated. So that's the theory behind it. You can certainly make the numbers look better. Does it make a difference in terms of outcome? We don't know. And to be brutal, you know, we're responding to the fact that the numbers look better. Now, some patients, there were quite dramatic improvements. You know, and I saw patients going from 80% oxygen to 30% oxygen in about four hours. Now, did that help that guy survive? Don't know. Had we just managed him in the normal way, would they have got better? Don't know. So there have been controlled trials of proning in the past, which have been sort of equivocal in terms of outcome benefit. Is that you know, for sort of ARDS patients? Yeah, for ARDS yeah. patients, sorry, yeah, sure. indeed. So some studies have shown a benefit, others haven't. For all the right reasons, we like numbers look more normal. Being brutal, does it make a huge difference to outcome? We don't know. Okay. Would we do anything differently? Um, I think we'd be better organised as a country and a hospital. We struggled with supplies, so we were having to make do with drugs that we are rather old-fashioned that we don't normally use, you know, struggling with paralysing agents uh, running out, struggling with um, a lack of uh, kidney machines, syringe pumps. Yes. You know. So all of these you know, really basic things, but they do make your life a lot easier and do help the patient. So again, you have to cope because you don't have what you normally rely upon. Do you think it helps make the case for more intensive care beds? Would that be beneficial, yeah, do you I, think? I think, again, it's this balance. I think we need the capacity to upsurge, hmm. you know, so we don't need, if you actually look at it, we don't need a huge amount of extra beds for intensive care. You know, we could probably do with more high dependency beds, hmm. but in terms of the number of people who need ventilating, 
in a normal situation we would cope. Yes, in the middle of a bad flu season, we may struggle, but by and large, we cope reasonably well. Uh, and so therefore, it becomes inefficient to have a huge capacity that lies redundant. On the other hand, and I think we've learned from COVID that you have to be prepared for a surge as and when it happens. And the likelihood is there'll be another viral pandemic, whether it's COVID or something else coming along in the next five, 10 years. And so we've got to be prepared. So I, I know what here the trust are trying to do is have more wards kitted out for intensive care capabilities and at the same time to rotate staff through intensive care to give them more expertise, more confidence in looking after sick patients, arterial lines, ventilators and the like. So I think those things are great and I think it will obviously help in their usual day-to-day -day practice because they'll be more comfortable looking after sicker patients in their day-to-day -day job. Yeah, definitely. Are we thinking about another wave? Um, yeah, I, oh, I think, oh, absolutely. So I think, you know, the government are obviously trying to stockpile PPE for obvious reasons, you know, clearly drugs, other bits of equipment, you know, they do have a shelf life. So again, it, it's, you know, I've got a little bit of sympathy for a government because, you know, this is the first time it's hit in a really, really bad way. And there were lots of scares before with H1N1, you know, the swine flu outbreak and SARS, and they never really came to pass in the sense of what we've seen in the last few months. And it's a case of how much resource do you have? You know, I think when they looked at their PPE stores, a lot of it had decayed and, you know, basically wasn't fit for purpose. And that's the problem. How, how much do you have sitting there, drugs going, expiring, et cetera, et cetera, just in case. A friend of mine in America talks about a sort of U-shaped curve in terms of efficiency or an inverted U. So if you have too few beds in intensive care, that's not enough to meet day-to-day -day demand. But if you have too many, it becomes economically a really, really bad idea because you've got all of this expensive resource and all of these expensively trained staff doing stuff which won't help the patient because they'll get better anyway. You know, so you need to be able to flex up I'll tell you a nice story if you want, uh, which is completely aside, but I was in Toronto at a meeting soon after the SARS pandemic, which is, I think that, well, not pandemic, epidemic, because it, it mainly hit a few big towns like uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Toronto. And a few months later, uh, I was at a big Canadian critical care conference in Toronto, and they had as an opening speaker, she was the Director of Public Health for Ontario, so the Toronto region, and she started talking about 9-11. And I think, oh, where's she going with this? And she made the point that after the planes hit the Twin Towers, you know, obviously that's where Wall Street is, that's the hub of the American sort of financial system, and I think, I can't remember the exact time, but it was literally an hour or two before they were up and running again. And I was, um, you know, oh gosh, that's impressive. Because they had literally a shadow facility in New Jersey or somewhere like that, which could literally be activated at a moment's notice with trained staff prepared to run it. Because the one thing the banking system didn't want to do is lose the confidence of the people. So they could show that you could carry on regardless and they were prepared for it. 
and she said that she went back to Canada thinking, oh, this is just Americans going crazy and spending money needlessly. And she talked to Canadian bankers and they said, yeah, yeah, we've got the same. And she then made the parallel to hospitals where you're running at 90, 95% occupancy rates and there's no slack in the system. Yeah, there's no give. No give. And, and so she said you've got that balancing act between being able to cope with a sudden surge but at the same time not having a whole load of redundancy just lying dormant. So you, you need it built into the system that you can upscale as and when, but to run it at that huge overcapacity isn't cost effective. So I think, yes, there is a greater appreciation of the health service. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a big fan of the health service and uh, it's got its failures and its deficiencies. But overall, I wouldn't want to change the health service for anything else. And, and I think it did bring home to people that, you know, there is a reliance on what we do and it should be cherished. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that is a positive that can be taken out of this horrible time. I think that's a really nice way to finish. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you so oh, much. Yeah, my pleasure. You didn't say anything too controversial, I don't think. You didn't ask me anything too <laughs> controversial. <laughs>